And Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you've already uh, bestowed upon us today. And Father, we know that there are more. And so we ask that you would fill us with energy, that you would fill us with uh, knowledge and understanding. Lord, that we would certainly take the, the topic at hand being your kingdom, Lord, it being physical and spiritual. Lord, give us a, a, a full grasp of it, that we wouldn't err one way or the other, but that we would be very wise, we'd be practical, uh, we'd be biblical, uh, Lord, that we would be able not only to aid ourselves in how we should react and act according to the, the circumstances of our day, but that we might help others as well. And so, Father, we pray for your bride to be awakened and, Lord, just shored up during these days that we live in. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Um, I'm going to read Psalm 2, and then I'll lay out our lesson for tonight and the next couple so that we know what we're doing and where we're going. Psalm 2, um, I'm going to be reading from the New King James rather than the NASB. Uh, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall break, then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree The Lord has said to me, you are my son. The day I have begotten you, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And when his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. I hope at least the principle that separating religion and politics doesn't work. I hope you've been able to see that. I hope you have recognized that there is a closer connection than one imagined in Typically today, most Christians believe there are no associations between the two, but I hope that I've demonstrated that uh, that would be an abomination, actually. That's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach a very close association between the spiritual or religious and the physical and political And if we were to start from the very beginning of the world, we would certainly just be able to survey all of Scripture and really see it, and it would be clear to us. But nevertheless, we find ourselves in a day where we are having to apologize, and I don't mean that in in, in asking for forgiveness. I mean that we're having to 
bring truth to bear upon this topic in our circles so that, well, Christians know how to respond. So that we can make sense of this, all of the things that are going on around us. Because, I mean, it's easily, you can easily find on internet, in internet circles and discussions that it's a spiritual battle for sure. But the question is, what, what kind of spiritual battle? How do you fight a spiritual battle? What are the weapons of our warfare? We certainly understand that there is an armor that we are to put on and we have given a, a, an instrument of offense, of offense, the sword. That we are to take the word of God and we are to put it into application into these uh, arenas, right? And when we do that, what are we doing? We're drawing, we're basically laying upon others responsibility. Now, that's what you do. When you, when you bring the word of God to bear in your own life, you are laying upon yourself duties, responsibilities. When you bring the word of God to bear in an argument, it, can, it, it doesn't matter what it can be. It could be between sibling. It could be between friend, husband, and wife. It doesn't matter what. It, when you bring a biblical argument to bear, what you're doing is you're basically then laying upon the situation responsibilities. Well, here's how we ought to respond together, or this is how you need to respond, or this is where you have failed, and this is what you need to do. Now, we all know, I think, that that's very offensive today. It always has been, but even more so in our own day and time because people have been fed uh, the lie of, uh, of you know, self-esteem, um, emotionalism, all of the various things that have polluted the one, one's heart and mind, basically personal rights, um, galore, and that kind of thing. Now, enough said about that. We'll get to Maybe some of that later on. What I want to say is all of this is new. This has not been the history of the world. This idea of a, a, a dichotomy of such a fashion that, that religion and politics are never to meet is new. Now you can say, well, that's been the glory of the American Constitution. Well, that that certainly is an argument. I don't think a good one, and I don't think can be proved to hold consistent through the various writings of the founding fathers, okay? Or of their children and grandchildren after them. But nevertheless, I mean, even the Westminster Confession, I'm just gonna read paragraph, this is, I wanted to be able to spend some time in this, but this is chapter 23 of the civil magistrate. I'm just going to read the first paragraph and then we're going to get into what our lesson is about tonight. It says this, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, all the world, not just heaven, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and the encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. Now I'm just gonna stop that. This confession that was written back in 
the mid-1600s is clearly recognizing the fact of God's dominion is both a religious and political dominion. That civil magistrate was ordained, created by God for the edification of the citizens of his kingdom. Now, that was, com- that was the common view and practice, brothers and sisters, up until just a couple of hundred years ago in this country. The, the, it, was, it was the coming of prominence of dispensationalism that really turned this whole thing upside down. That is, it created this environment of this hyper-spirituality that this world should have nothing to do with the next. And all of it does sound good. I mean, we all have a tendency to want to be, we all want to be spiritual. We don't want to be worldly. But there's, we need to certainly understand what true worldliness is and what real spirituality is because they've been conflated and they have been abused and now there's a misunderstanding. I mean, if you like going to you know, a celebration, you're worldly. If you sit down to watch a TV program with your family and have some popcorn and enjoy just the time together, that's worldliness. Now, I've had people tell me that. I'm not making that up. So we have, again, what do we, our terms need to be understood and defined, don't they? So what I want to do is I want us to just walk through, we're not going to be able to get but probably two um, Matthew and Acts. What I want to do is walk through some of the New Testament and just highlight text of scripture that you couldn't understand any other way than the way we've been interpreting Psalm 2. That, that, that there is a king over heaven and earth and this dominion is all his and there's, there's no neutrality when it comes to the kingdom of God. There's not the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of heaven and eternity and whatnot that doesn't encompass the world that we live in, okay? When the preaching of the gospel began, what did they say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, okay? So where do we begin? Well, we begin at Matthew chapter one, and I'm just gonna look, it's not gonna be detailed. I'm just pointing things out to you that hopefully you might pray over and study in more depth on your own. Matthew chapter one, verse one, it starts out and it basically helps us understand, at least from Matthew's perspective, who this Christ is. Uh, who he is and what's he about. He's the book of, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Notice the son of David, the son of Abraham. From the very beginning, the New Testament begins in highlighting that Jesus is of the kingly line of David. That is not a small matter. And often Christians absolutely read right over this without any, 
Any contemplation to David's kingdom, the promise God gave to him that his seed would sit upon a throne forever. Again, what I want you to understand is notice the terminology that is brought to the kingdom of God. It is both a political terminology and a religious terminology. They both go in tandem together without mixture, if you will, but without, without abuse, without abuse. And I think that's why we can say, or we should be able to say that we, Christians, especially Christians, have a moral obligation to advocate for and support a Christian state. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? It makes no sense. I'll give you a, a, a testimony of some interaction I had with an attorney um, one time. We were, we were having a conference at the church that I was pastoring in Macon and had a well attended, and it was attached to uh, some political stuff. Um, I want to say even the Constitutional Party. They had they were, we were doing some things along those lines, and and so it, it had certainly um, created a lot of interest in the community, and we had quite a few people uh, involved. And one of the guys there. Um, went to one of the local Presbyterian churches. Anyway, he stayed afterwards and began to sort of engage me. He felt like I somehow was the one to talk to about this kingdom of God and about the connection between what we might call religion and politics. And he let me know in, I mean, in clear terms that he would quote, never, ever advocate for a Christian state, ever. And I, I, you know, and I just laughed a little bit, you know, why? And, and, And he couldn't really give me a reason other than just, quote, abuses. And I, and I just, you know, and again, you gotta kinda take people where they are and help them and, you know, I said, well, I mean, if we're going to, you know, lay it one abuse to another abuse, I mean, we, 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 we can both pile them up if you, you know, want to do that. But the question is not abuses. We've recognized that sinful men do abusive things. The question really is, what does the Bible say? Isn't that not the question? That's the question. The question is, well, what say ye the scriptures? In this matter. And if the scriptures teach what we're talking about and advocating, then what's our responsibility to the scriptures? Submission. Does that mean I have all the answers? Does that mean you will have all the answers? No, it does not. That's never been said from this pulpit. It should never be say, said by you in a conversation. What should be said, well, first of all, let's just agree that this is what scripture is teaching. And then let's agree to submit to it because we are Christians and we have double obligations and responsibilities to submit to the word of God. Now, all men have an obligation to submit to the word of God. We have double reasons to submit to the word of God. We've got the creation reason and we have the grace reason, okay? 
So we see from the fact that from the very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the very first verse, highlights Jesus' kingship. Now, this should not, you know, surprise us in the least because this is exactly what the wise men were doing when they were seeking Jesus. These wise men that were going out seeking the Christ were what? They were political figures. They, they, were, they were not religious figures. They weren't prophets. They were sages. They were of a political nature. And what are they going to do? They're going to worship the king. You see there in, in chapter 2 of Matthew, and after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born, what? King of the Jews. For we've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So again, what is Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit highlighting for us? Who did these wise men, what, did they all, what do we know they thought of Jesus? We've come to worship the king. The prophesied king, the one who had been promised. His sign has been in the heavens and we've come to worship him, the king of the Jews. Now, that, now listen to me, brothers and sisters. The last we have looked in scripture, there are no kings in the church. There's not an office of king. Right? We can agree to that. So we already know what is being highlighted here is his magistrate, his, his office of, his, his, his majesty. As a magistrate, Jesus, this redeemer, the one prophesied about, the son of God who has been installed on God's holy hill, he comes as king of the Jews. Now, that's the, uh, the only office he fulfills. But it is a, look, it's royalty. It's royalty. Jesus' royalty is being highlighted here. But this king is different in one sense because these wise men are coming to worship him. They're coming to admire him. They're coming to submit to him. Now, it's not that magistrates don't want to be worshiped. They certainly, I think, do when, you know, they're so full of themselves. We'll see that in the book of Acts. But at the same time, Jesus is the one worthy of it. Look in verse 6 of chapter 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this king is both king and he's also a shepherd king. Now the word shepherd connects what? the state with the church because pastors are shepherds. 
Now, kings can shepherd. David was a shepherd. I hope you can see there are so many connections being made here, and it ought to be one of those things that jump up into our face, and we go, why didn't I see it before? I get it. I understand. Let's go into Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. All right. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness preaching. And look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise these uh, from these stones, uh, raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now I'm going to stop there. Because the point, I think, is, is here is who comes out to hear and judge John the Baptist. Well, the Pharisees, we know that's a religious sect, and the Sadducees, and that was more of the political sect. What are they coming out there to do? Well, they're basically coming out there to judge John the Baptist, to judge his preaching, to deem it whether it needs to be stopped or allowed. But John the Baptist treats them as apostates. How did we know that from the text? Because he talks about the ax is laid at the tree and that they had the responsibility and duty of what? As, as a church and state to bear good fruit. And he said, if you don't, what's going to happen? You are going to be cut off. Now, this is both church and state here. What's the point? The point is, who has the authority to judge the church? We'd say, oh, well, of course, God does. States, God does. And, of course, we've, we've got history in the Old Testament, but I'm just highlighting some of these things that are consistent with it in the New Testament. So we see that's clear. Let's look at the temptation of our Lord. I'm only, going to, I'm only pointing out the last one because I want to deal with the idea of ambition. Chapter 4, um, verse 7, it says, And it was written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. It said, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. I would submit to you that there is plausible 
it's very plausible that when, when the Satan is tempting Jesus in that temptation, he is tempting him to political ambition. Politicians often run amok with ambition. Satan knows this. You can imagine since the, the, the history of the world and the fall of man, Satan has been exquisitely successful in what? Fostering political ambitions. And so what does he do with Jesus? And why would he even bring this political ambition to Jesus? Because Jesus is king. Because he is king. He has yet to take that rightful seat, but he is nevertheless the anointed future king that God has installed on his holy hill. And so what does Satan do? Satan wants to treat Jesus like he's treated every other political official with ambition. I don't think it's, I don't think it goes, I don't think it is a stretch at all to see how ambition has ruined representative after representative, governor after governor, president after president in our own country. Personal, political ambitions are, are typically treasonous to the people. And that's what we're dealing with. That, that's, that's what we're struggling with, the, the in-your-face, blatant hypocrisy and treachery and treason that lies before us. It, it, it's, it's painful to look at, isn't it? And yet it's there. The selling of American souls for the political favors of other countries, such as China, Iran, or even Israel. Ambition. It works. Political favor, favoritism works. And this is exactly what Satan wanted to tempt Jesus with. This political, I will give you the kingdoms of this world. You can have it all if you would just submit to me. I don't think it's, again, it's not something that is, um, it's something that's easily, if you will, overlooked, but that's the heart of it. That's the heart of the temptation in that third temptation. And we have to ask ourselves, well, you know, why is it there? And now we have a, at least a reasonable explanation of what Satan was doing. If he could get our Lord to follow the path of so many kings before him. Look at uh, Matthew 5.
In verse 35, it says, nor by the, talking about the swearing of oaths, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, that's interesting. That's an interesting concept because that phrase, the city of the great king, was actually applied politically to the king of Persia. That he had basically uh, conquered it and it was his city. And so when Jesus is using this, he is bringing up a historical reference that Jerusalem was, quote, recognized as the city of the great king. But, but who's, who's, who's the one preaching here? Who is the true great king? Jesus, you see. Highlighting something to the readers and to his listeners so they begin to understand and put the, connect the dots, if you will. And of course, we could go to the type of Melchizedek in Hebrews 7. And we could talk about how Melchizedek was that type of kingly priest, right? The king of peace, the king of, of Salem, if you will. That was Jerusalem. That city that is being talked about with Melchizedek was Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of the great king. And so who is the true king? Jesus is. He is the Lord of glory. It is his city, just like all cities belong to him. And just highlighting this from the text, look at Matthew chapter 12. When you see there in verse 22 and following, you see when he's talking about um, the divided house, this kingdom. It says, then one who was brought to him, who was demon possessed, blind and mute, he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw and all the multitude saw and all the multitude were amazed and said, could this be the what? Son of David. And now the Pharisees heard this this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub and the ruler, the ruler of the demons. So they accused Jesus. So here's the, the political officials and the religious elites say, well, the only power Jesus uses is not the, listen, it's not the recognized authoritative power of being in the lineage of David. That's the, that's the implication. The, the crowds recognize this is the son of David. He's the one that comes with authority and legitimate power. And he even has it over demons. Now look at this kingdom, the expanse of this kingdom. It's not just in the physical world. It also, this realm over that Jesus rules over is both physical and spiritual. It's what we see and don't see that belongs to him. He rules over all of it. 
So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are saying, oh, no, 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 let's, let's cut this off right here. He is in league with the devil. That's the power he uses. But notice what he says. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And I just stop there because I think you get the point. The point being, the point is that what Jesus is saying, oh, I come in the authority of my father and this is my kingdom. This is my role. This is what I'm going to be doing. And I'm exercising lawful authority over this kingdom. This kingdom is not divided at all. And this also helps us understand, too, that you cannot be against Christ and not be against his kingdom. He's casting out the devils. He's rebuking those who have, are saying he is in league with the devil. You, look, there's no dichotomy. There's no neutral ground here. You're for me or against me. You're with the kingdom or you're against the kingdom. That's it. To be against Christ in his kingdom is to be for the kingdom of darkness and the prince of darkness, if you will. There's no neutral ground here. Just like the same, there's no neutral ground as John the Baptist was telling the religious elites and the, the Sadducees, right? Like, look, don't you know that if you don't bear good fruit, what's going to happen to you? God's going to cut you out. In, Christ is going to come and render and execute judgment. Why? Because he's king. Uh, let's see, he, and he, the whole chapter really is, um, it speaks to this. You can highlight the whole chapter here. Um, look at verse 38, and now he brings in a city. He says, now some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we, uh, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the son of man be in three day, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Right, let's stop there because we're going to highlight the queen of the south too. We've already mentioned it when we talked about the people of God. But look at what Jesus is clearly teaching us. Here are the people of God in this, this covenant people, so to speak, who, have a, who were guilty of apostasy. Jesus says, do you not know that even Nineveh are going to rise up on judgment day and they're going to speak against you? 
That's what he's teaching. Now, all of this comes... All of this highlights the authority and the kingship of Christ. Here's how, again, why? Because when it talks about Nineveh repenting, who's included in all this? Who did the king of Nineveh submit to? Or who, who submitted in Nineveh to the, who, King Jesus, the king of Nineveh? And what Jesus is saying is, listen, do you not know those authorities submitted and repented of their sins? But you do not and will not, and you'll be condemned on judgment day. Then the next personality in verse 42 says, then the queen of the south will rise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Now Solomon was a king. And Jesus says, I'm a greater king than Solomon. He says, but even the queen of Sheba, who who traveled great distances to hear the wisdom of Solomon, the king, will rise up in this generation and speak against it and judge it because a greater king is here speaking to you, giving you wisdom, showing you the ways and the paths of eternal life, and you're rejecting it. So these are not unrelated events. These events have in them this, this, this thread of Jesus's royalty, his royalty. Listen to uh, Thomas Burks on the Queen of the South. He says, the lesson in the praise of the Queen of the South is the same. She is highly praised because she left her own homeland to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And what was the nature of that wisdom which our Lord praises her for seeking after with such diligence. We learn, we learn it from her own words. Blessed be the Lord thy God that delighted in thee to set thee on his throne and to be king for the Lord thy God because the Lord thy God loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore made he thee king over them to do judgment and justice, end quote. The wisdom then which she gained by her journey to hear Solomon was for which our Lord commends her consisted on the one hand of the union of the kingly power with judicial equity, justice, and on the other in public consecration of the throne, the king and the whole nation to the service of the living God. That means that's why Solomon existed. That's why Jesus is king, because he's going to do what? He's consecrating a people to the glory of the Father. That's the goal. He says, the reverse is equally true when sensual pleasure and worldly expedience betrayed Solomon into the part, uh, patronage of idolatry to conciliate his wives, his wisdom departed from him and the glory of his kingdom was obscured. 
But see, that's not going to happen. That hasn't happened to Jesus. It's not going to happen. One, what did Jesus say? And one greater than Solomon is here. A greater king in, in purity and morality and glory and authority and might. All of those things. All of that applies to Jesus. Matthew 19 There were others. I just didn't highlight all of them. <clears throat> In fact, I'm going to. Probably skip over some of these. Um, we'll, we'll do two more. So Matthew 19, this is the end of, of Matthew's account of the rich young ruler. Notice what Jesus says as Matthew's record of it in verse 28. He says, Jesus said to them, surely I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit, and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. Again, what is interesting about the text, which I'm sure you already caught, is that thrones are mentioned. Jesus is sitting on a throne and the 12 apostles will sit on thrones. And what will they do on these thrones? They will carry out, they will carry out justice. They will judge they will be judges. And again, judges are of a civil nature. Just as, well, a throne is of a civil nature. We don't, it's not true that we don't have a throne in the church. We do. Christ has a throne in the church. Christ sits on a throne and he governs the church. So the church has a throne. Jesus is sitting on that throne, but we don't have pastors. We don't have thrones. We don't issue thrones with the office of pastor. This is obviously something that's very uniquely applied to Jesus and the 12. But yet what is to be recognized by the text is that this is of a civil this is of a civil flavor to it being thrones and judgments which is listen which is doesn't obscure the gospel at all in fact it acts as if it's a compliment to it let's go to the very end of the book of Matthew and this might be where we Stop, but the Great Commission, verse 16. Now, before I read the text, let me make a connection for you. There are, there are commentators 
that have called this the Psalm 2 of the New Testament. And I think you can see why. In verse 16, when the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountains which Jesus had appointed for them, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And when Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, it's certainly important to recognize that there is a a seeming connection between this text and Psalm 2. Psalm 2 talks about the installation of the Son of God on his holy mountain. This text tells us that he has been installed and he has received this authority and it has been given to him to what? This all, all of this authority is over what? Heaven and earth. It's not limited to the earthly kingdom. It's not limited to just heaven. He didn't assume authority over heaven and leave the earth to the devil, so to speak. No, it all belongs to Jesus. And notice, we know this by the text itself because of the extent of Jesus' words to the disciples. Notice he says, go therefore and make disciple of what? All the nations. That's the extent that that when Jesus says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, it's obvious by his commandment to the disciples that it included all the nations. Now, I would encourage you to add to your library um, William Symington's Messiah the Prince. And it's a commentary on the three offices of Jesus prophet, priest, and king. And one of the things that Symington highlights and brings out of this text is that, listen, when, when, when Jesus sends out the apostles, he does not send an envoy to these magistrates and say, hey, I'm just, you know, I'm going to have my people, you know, close by. And I'm just asking for permission so they can preach the gospel. Would you mind giving us permission so, you know, we can preach the gospel because, you know, we, we want to save people. And, you know, we're, that's why we're here to, you know, preach the gospel to all the nations. No, he doesn't do that. See, this commission, this commandment supersedes all civil magistrates. Why? Well, from the text itself, all authority has been given to me, not partial authority, all of it. Nothing is being withheld. There is no magistrate over me. I am the superior of all magistrates. Now, listen, brothers and sisters, he's not just talking about 
That is, he's not just speaking as a religious representative. This is Jesus speaking from a kingly perspective. This is a, this is a, a, a king who is prophet and priest, Melchizedek type. He's the king of peace. And what is he going to do? He is sending his entourage. He is sending his representatives into the nations to preach the gospel and to even preach the gospel to the civil magistrate so that they would repent of their sins, quote, Nineveh, that they too would be saved and brought into the kingdom of God. So when we talk about the saving of the nations, we're not simply talking about random people or families here and there. We're talking about nation states coming under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, that's the motto of this church. Making the nations Christ's disciples. That's the meaning. That's the, that's the, that is the exegetical meaning of the text. You cannot eisegete this text to say few people here and there. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with the context of all of Scripture. It doesn't fit with the authority of Christ. It doesn't fit with his glory. It doesn't fit. You know, when I talk about his glory, I'm talking about what he's worthy of. Isn't Christ worthy of the nations? Don't you think? Then is it criminal for him to demand that the nations submit to him? Is it criminal? But why do Christians act like it's criminal to do that? Why do judges or governors or representatives or American presidents, why would they be offended to submit to Christ if his glory, right? If he's worthy of their submission. And I'll submit to you, and we know why, because they are spiritually dead and enemies of Christ and enemies of the kingdom, and they're your enemies too. And they're full of all kinds of ambition. And they're treacherous, and they're treasonous. And, and when Christ, now listen, and men may escape the tribunals of the earth, but they won't escape the tribunal of heaven. And they will be tried for treason. We will all be tried according to the responsibilities given to each one of us. It's the way it works. So I'm going to stop there. And let's go ahead and end that lesson. And we can take up some questions. We have about 10 minutes.